Let's pray. Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you this morning, and we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that it is breathed out from heaven above. We thank you that it points us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so we ask this morning that by your Spirit you would open our eyes and point us to him, our Savior, today. We pray that you would give us hearts to receive that message that you would have for us this morning. We pray for ourselves. Uh, I pray for myself and I pray for Bob as he ministers your word at Malden. Lord, give us courage, give us boldness. And we pray that you would help us each. Help us each to see Jesus in all his risen glory this morning. Amen. Well, I don't know how much you remember of the year 2016. Uh, There were a few big sporting occasions that year. There were the Rio Olympics. Uh, There was some championship in football that happened in France. Uh, Politically, of course, there was a a Brexit referendum. There was an American presidential election, just a couple of minor events there. Uh, But there was another reason why 2016 was particularly notable for many people. It was marked if you remember, by the shock of a string, a seemingly never-ending string of celebrity deaths. David Bowie, Terry Wogan, Ronnie Corbett, Victoria Wood, Muhammad Ali, George Michael, just a few. It seemed that there were just so many more that year than any other, so much more frequently that year than any other. And with every new death, there was a fresh outpouring of grief all over social media. People found it pretty hard to cope with this steady stream of famous people dying and the reminder that even stardom cannot prevent the inevitable. The reality is, you know, we are regularly confronted with the sad reality of death. Part of my morning routine is to glance through the BBC News website on my phone And there is barely a morning that goes by that I do not read of death in one way or another. Whether it's a terrorist attack or a traffic collision, flooding or coronavirus, whatever it is, death seems to be all around us. Some people have tried to make light of it, of course. Woody Allen famously said, it's not that I'm afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. The reality is he will be. And in our passage this morning, we are confronted with the reality of death. That refrain that punctuates the whole of that chapter, and he died. We're faced in Genesis 5 in no uncertain terms with the consequence of the fall of chapter 3. We saw last week, of course, in chapter 4, how tragedy invaded the very first family with Cain murdering his brother Abel. That untimely death brought about by murder was, was truly horrific. And yet now in chapter 5, we realize that death has not just invaded that first family, it has invaded the whole of humanity. Just as God had warned Adam, eat of the fruit and you will surely die. And yet, as certain and as terrifying as death is, Genesis 5 does not leave us without hope. 
we are not to leave here this morning depressed about death because although death is real and awful, God has promised and provided a death-defeating Savior, His Son, our Lord Jesus. And the triumph of His resurrection, His triumph over death has been that regular theme throughout all the songs we've sung this morning. So two things that we are to notice about from Genesis 5 about our human existence in this death-ridden world. Number one, we are fallen but not forgotten. Adam and Eve could perhaps have been forgiven for initially thinking that the curse of death had not been poured out upon them. After all, God said if they ate of the forbidden fruit, they would surely die, but they didn't. Or at least they didn't drop down dead the moment they ate. So has God decided, they may have wondered, has God decided not to do as he'd warned? Of course, they were soon to discover what death really meant. The process of death had begun for them. It involved painful childbearing, the hard work of the land, disrupted relationships with each other, and and more importantly, of course, with God. The actual event of death had been delayed for a while, but not forever. Adam and Eve, of course, were given a sharp reminder of that when their eldest son murdered his brother. You can imagine maybe how when Cain was born, uh, Eve may have wondered, is this the promised seed? I've given birth to a man, offspring. God had promised one of my offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Is this the promised one? Imagine her disappointment when he turned out to reject God and and kill his younger brother. And I think it must have greatly confused Adam and Eve when they remembered the curse, the warning God had given them. Eat the fruit and they would die. I reckon it must have greatly confused them when they remembered God's words and yet the first person to die was their son, not one of them. Would have slowly, I think, begun to dawn on them that the consequence for sin, death, was not only going to happen to them, this was a problem that infected not just themselves, but the entire human race to which they gave birth. Do you remember, as we looked at chapter 3, we considered what it means to be born with a sinful nature. We are born, as the Bible says, in Adam. That is, we're born with a sinful nature because we're born to sinful parents. Sin infects the whole human race, and therefore death affects the whole human race. We're confronted on our news all the time at the moment, aren't we, about the coronavirus, how it is spreading, almost seemingly uncontrollably, and all the things we're meant to do to prevent the spread, and and, and yet one wonders, well, actually, when you just look at how it spread, is, is there any stopping it? Sin is an even greater virus, an even greater infection than that. It infects every single human heart. And therefore, death affects the whole human race. And as chapter 5 begins, we're faced with two realities that we need to hold in balance. We are made in the image of God, but we are fallen. Moses begins uh, in verse 1 by reminding us that when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God, in his image. And then, verse 2, he blessed them. He reminds them of the blessing of, uh, of, of God upon the first man and woman. It's as if Moses, when, he, when he's writing down these words 
for the people of God as they're wandering in the desert after being delivered from Egypt. It's as if Moses contemplates the horror of what he's just written in chapters 3 and 4. And he realizes that God's people need this reminder. That humanity, despite the horror of sin and death, humanity is nevertheless in the image of God. In case we've forgotten this glorious truth, remember, humanity then and now are created in the image of God. That image is spoiled within us. And yet we must never forget that we and every other human being on this planet is created in the image of the triune God. That is a wonderful privilege. And that privilege comes with blessing. God had blessed Adam and Eve, remember? He blessed them with the right to rule over the earth and blessed them with the right to reproduce and to fill the earth. And in a sense, despite the cloud that hangs over Genesis 5, this is a chapter that shows us how that blessing unfolded. Although death reigns, just look at what happens. Genesis 5 covers a period of around a thousand years. And it's full of people being born. A family line, and each one has other sons and daughters too. The human race was doing what God commanded. Filling the earth. That itself is a sign of God's blessing. So despite the curse of death, God's blessing was not removed. A wonderful reminder, even in the darkness of chapter 5, a wonderful reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness. So on the one hand, we've got, we've got this truth that Moses reminds us of. Human beings are in the image of God. Because Adam was in the image of God. But look at verse 3. Adam had a son in his own likeness. In his own image. And he named him Seth. Now, you know what it's like when uh, somebody's got a newborn baby. Everyone crowds around, don't they? And goes all gooey and gushy. One of the common things they do is to point out how much the baby looks like mum or dad or one of the grandparents. Oh, isn't she sweet, they say. She's got your eyes. I remember being very confused about that when I was a child. No, no, mum's got her eyes. Um, Or doesn't he look like dad's side of the family? Maybe you even get your own baby photos out and compare them. I can tell you, though, the novelty wears off when you're in your mid-30s and people still come up to you and tell you how much you look like your father. Um, But it's easy to see, isn't it? Easy to see the physical likeness in our children. That physical likeness is passed down from generation to generation. But beneath all that, there is a spiritual likeness that is passed down through the whole of the human race. Adam was created in the image of God, but Seth was born in the image of Adam. What does that mean? Well, it means that although Seth and every other human being since him bears something of the likeness of God, it also means that he and we bear something of the likeness of Adam. Seth inherits his father's likeness, his sinful fallen nature. We, the human race, are fallen. We may be in the image of God, but we're also in the likeness of Adam. Rebellious people who dethrone God, we are fallen. Like Seth, we are born in Adam's likeness, sinful nature, fallen people, and yet we are not forgotten. We're fallen, but not forgotten. Many people get to certain parts of the Bible, they see a list of unpronounceable names and decide it's not worth the effort to read them. Uh, Other people 
get a, a list of unpronounceable names and decide they're going to ask somebody else to read them in the service. Um, many people just glance over them. There are many who would love to ask Matthew why he thought it was a good idea to begin the New Testament with a list of unpronounceable names. But, you know, these genealogies, these family lines are in the Bible for a reason. Whenever you come to a list of names in the Bible like this, may I suggest that you do read them. But as you read them, remember one thing. These are real people. And if you remember these are real people, then you then begin to ask the question, well, why does God mention them? The Bible is God's word. It's inspired. It's breathed out by him. And this list of names in Genesis 5 is every bit as breathed out by God as is Psalm 23 or John 3.16. These names are are real people. Uh, And they're in the Bible because God put them there. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that real individual people are known by and important to God. And important to God's purposes. These are real people and God knows them. He knows them by name. He knows you and me by name. People matter to God. In fact, people matter to God more than people matter to other people. But the fact that these kind of genealogies, family lines, feature so prominently in the Bible tells us that God does not work in a vacuum. In his sovereignty, he chooses to work out his purposes in this world through human beings like us. God is always at work to bring about his purposes. What was God doing in the days of Genesis 5? Well, he was doing the same as he was doing throughout the whole of the Old Testament period. He was working to bring his promised seed into the world. It wasn't Cain. It wasn't Seth. It was still centuries away, in fact. Centuries don't really matter to God. Because all that time, through all these people, God was working to bring about his purpose, to bring his promised one into the world at just the right time. And all these real people, they, well, they matter to God. They're all part of his plan and his purpose for his glory. The same applies to us today. God still chooses to work out his purposes in the world through real individual people like you and me. The promised seed has come, of course, Jesus, our our Savior. And through people who have come to trust in him, God is now working to transform the world. That's what he was doing in Genesis 5. That's what he's still doing today. So do you grasp that fact, that that if you are a Christian here this morning, you are as much involved in God's grand plan to transform the world as was Seth and Kenan and Noah. So, So never for one moment think that you and your life does not matter to God. Never for one moment think that you don't matter to God's purposes. Never for one moment think that your service, your witness for God, doesn't matter. Never think it's unimportant or insignificant. Enosh and Jared and Methuselah, well, they would have had no idea that their names would be written in our Bibles. Their lives were just normal. Surely they just sought to be faithful. But in God's greater purposes, they find themselves in the family tree of Jesus. I've been greatly encouraged this week as I've read this passage. Uh, And I trust that you will be encouraged too. To just get on with the business 
today, this week, this year, of living faithfully, of playing our part in God's greater purpose. We may never know how significant that role may be, but never think that a life lived well, a life lived faithfully, could be insignificant. Never think that your witness, your service for Jesus in the workplace or in the home, never think that it doesn't matter. It's the most significant thing in all the world. Genesis 5 is just full of normal people living normal lives. And yet God has a sovereign purpose, but he's working through them. And in God's mercy, he is still, to this day, fulfilling his purposes in the world through his people. We are born in the likeness of Adam. So we are most definitely fallen, but we are by no means forgotten. We're by no means useless, fallen but not forgotten. Second, we are frail, but we are full of hope. The recurring reminder of death in Genesis 5 is an early warning in the Bible of the frailty of the human life. Uh, by the time you get to the, to the wisdom literature in the, uh, uh, in the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, well, it's a recurring theme. Psalm 103, for example, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish in, like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon reflects that everything is meaningless, literally a, a vapor. Like, like your breath on a cold winter's morning, Life is there, but soon gone. Depressing stuff, isn't it? Uh, Because of the reign of death that we see in Genesis 5, because of the reign of death, human life is incredibly frail and fragile. Many of us know how fragile uh, human life is, the human body is. You well know our family has a pretty impressive track record when it comes to broken bones. Maybe we're more fragile than most, but we only have to look around. Maybe look across the fellowship here or our own family, or maybe our our work colleagues, or our next-door neighbors, look around and reflect on the number of people battling with disease, or a chronic diagnosis, those grieving over the loss of a loved one. Constant daily reminders that human life is frail. This is the reality of living in a fallen world. The wages of sin is death, wrote the Apostle Paul in in Romans 6. Death is the just payment for sin. Uh, But as we saw in Genesis 3, death death is not instantaneous. It's a a process. Uh, And so our human existence in this world is, is one, if you like, of progressive death. From the moment we are born, we are dying people. We're frail. Genesis 5 is a reminder of that frailty. Uh, This chapter is a bit like walking through a cemetery. Do you ever do that? Uh, There are some very famous cemeteries in the world. Highgate Cemetery in London, for example. All sorts of famous people are buried there. Highgate Cemetery, incidentally, has its own website. It markets itself as a tourist attraction. Uh, And on its website, it says it's a place of contemplation to remember those who have gone before us and to celebrate their achievements. But let's get real. It's not, is it? It exists not as a place of celebration. It's a reminder of death. It's a reminder of the frailty of human life, that no matter how great or how good those individuals were, they still died. Death was inescapable for them. 
we need to recognize the frailty of our human existence. But as we do that, we, we need to make sure that we don't just sort of normalize death. If you, if you take a walk around a cemetery and you see the hundreds, the thousands of people, uh, the gravestones, hundreds of thousands of people buried there, it's easy to conclude, well, if, if death just catches up with everybody in the end, it's just normal. We just have to accept it. My nan was a, a wonderfully godly woman. I, I was very close to her, and, and Beth and I were with her as she passed into glory. And when you come face to face with death like that, you realize very clearly that although in God's mercy he has transformed death, so that for her, for, as for every believer, it was the gateway to glory, at the same time you realize very clearly that death is not normal. It is an interruption into life. It's an enemy invader. This is not what we were created for. Death is ugly. There, there is a stench to death, metaphorically and literally speaking. Death is utterly awful. It is tragic whenever it happens. Uh, a few days after my nan had, had died, a work colleague, a professing Christian, uh, said something to me that I'll never forget. He said this, Tim, in all my years... I've come to realize that death is just part of life. I thought, no. No. Absolutely not. We're created for life. We're created for eternity. Souls that are built for eternity. And yet our bodies are so frail. And death is the unnatural separation of body and soul. There could be nothing more unnatural, nothing more opposed to God's perfectly created order of things. And that is why the refrain, and he died, stands out like a sore thumb in Genesis 5. So early on in the Bible, so soon after God had created all things and declared them to be very good, so soon after he had created Adam and Eve and walked and talked with them, so soon after all that comes this terrible refrain time and time again, and he died. Now, all of these men in Genesis 5, they had tremendously long lives. Before the flood, this kind of long life seemed to be the norm. Remember, there was, there was a fairly new world at the time. There was, there was very little pollution, nothing to, uh, very little to, to get in the way of, of life, a healthy life. No surprise, people live much longer. Other ancient cultures, incidentally, have history books, and people live, they record people living just as long as this. This is not made up. This is real history. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine living till 900. But by the time Moses wrote Psalm 90, 70 to 80 years had become the, the norm. That was, that still is a good life, isn't it? A good innings, as we might say. But in these early years of the world's existence, people lived much longer. And, and yet, despite these long lives, death came in the end. And he died, and he died, and he died. And so will we. Because we are frail. We are frail, but we are also full of hope. As we wander through the cemetery of Genesis 5, as we're studying the gravestones of these first fathers of human history, did you notice something? As we wander along the pathway, there's a gravestone missing. Something rather strange happened with Enoch, didn't it? Verse 24, Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. He was young too, he was a mere whippersnapper, 365, but he did not die. 
he's one of a very limited number of people whom the Bible records as having been spared the agony, the experience of death. Enoch spent his life walking with God. That means he lived in, in fellowship, in relationship with God. Uh, Hebrews 11, the, the great hall of faith, talks about Enoch. Uh, and it says this, before he was taken... He was commended as one who pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please God. So Enoch's relationship with God, his daily walk with God, was based on faith. It was faith that characterizes his whole life. Faith that was his grounds for his relationship with God, just, just as it is for us. But there's no explanation, is there, as to why he was just taken. It's not that his life was in any way better than anyone else's. God, God doesn't kind of work like that. We, we don't know why God just decided to take Enoch. And yet that's not really important. If we were supposed to know the reason, we would do. What is important is that we just know that it happened. Well, why is that important? Well, it's important because in the midst of this dark and depressing chapter, in the middle of this cemetery, there is a missing grave. Enoch stands out as a ray of hope. Because although we're, we're right to say, on the one hand, that death reigns, Enoch also reminds us that there is one whose reign is stronger than death. You see, if God decides that death will not take somebody, then it won't. Because God, and not death, is the final ultimate power. God is sovereign even over death. And in his mercy, God has transformed death. So that as terrible as it is for the Christian believer, it is the gateway to glory. But here in this early chapter of the Bible, Enoch holds out the possibility that death will not win. That death might not have the final say after all. What a beautiful hope that was to Old Testament believers who knew little or nothing of what we know. Maybe it was his knowledge of Enoch's story that led Job to say those extraordinary words, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I will see God. You see, Enoch holds out the hope that the reign of death is not final, that God is willing to make a way so that even though we are fallen and frail, death will not have the final say over us. Enoch points us to that reality that ultimately we need a death defeater. Yes, yes, of course, God can snatch anybody up so that death doesn't catch up with them. The reality is he did it for just a couple of individuals. And just as Genesis 3 pointed us to our need for a serpent crusher, Genesis 5 shows us how desperately we need a death defeater. One who will take away death's power over us. Because the promised seed that Eve so looked forward to. That promised seed is not only a serpent-crushing saviour, he is a death-defeating saviour. Jesus, the one who came and who said that he had come, that we may have life and life to the full. Jesus, the one who wept at the horror of death when his friend Lazarus had died, yet in the same breath said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus, the one who crushed Satan's head as he paid for our sin at the cross. Jesus, the one who marched out of the tomb because he's conquered death. He's trampled all over death. And so in him, death no longer has the final say because Jesus is our death-defeating saviour. 
yes, we will one day die. Unless Jesus comes first, of course. But other than that, we will one day die. And yet we can trust that death will not have the final say over us because our Savior has triumphed. Death is defeated. Death is dead because Jesus lives. The story that begins in Revelation, end, uh, the story that begins in Genesis, rather, ends in Revelation. We've, we've kind of turned there most weeks, haven't we? Turn with me briefly there again to Revelation 1. And look at verse 18. The risen Lord Jesus speaks and says this, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the key to death and Hades. Jesus lives. And he holds the keys to death. He's in charge. Death is defeated. And one day he's coming and he will make all things new. Towards the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21. Listen to what it says. Verse 4. On that day there will be no more death. Or mourning. Or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Death will not have the final say. It's that confidence that has led countless Christians throughout the ages to face death with hope. The evangelist D.L. Moody famously said, one day you will wake up and read that I am dead. Don't believe a word of it. I will be more alive on that day than ever. I will have just changed a dress. Or the Puritan John Owen on his deathbed, wrote to a friend and said, I am yet in the land of the dying, but soon hope to be in the land of the living. That is the glory of the Christian hope. Do you know it? The wages of sin is death, wrote Paul, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To him be glory. Amen. Let's sing our closing hymn, Glory to Jesus, Risen, Conquering Son.